You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today is Vietnam veteran and registered nurse Lou Eisenbrandt. Sue was, uh, Lou, Lou was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease about 19 years ago, the result of exposure to Agent Orange. Our Angels of Mercy in Vietnam came in contact with the lethal herbicide when cutting away the uniforms on the wounded soldiers. I was privileged to meet Lou and listen to her awe-inspiring presentation during a meeting of the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association, and I am so, so glad to have her today. Lou, welcome to the show, young lady. Thank you, Pete. I'm glad to be here. Well, I, I am so, so glad that you're with us today. Let, let's get the, uh, uh, your background just a little bit, Lou. Where were you born and raised? And tell us a little bit about your childhood. Okay. Um, I was born and raised in southern Illinois in a small town called Mascuta. It's an Indian name. I was the oldest of five uh, children, and basically our life was centered around as much as it was in the 50s, 60s, uh, home, uh, helping with chores around the house, um, going to church on Sunday, things of that sort. I, My father was a, a, a worker, actually he worked for Purina Feed for a few years, and my mother was, a, a, until later in her life, was a stay-at-home mom with five kids. So there wasn't much um, to look at beyond my small town, part of what led me to the Army. Oh, well, what, what stirred your interest in nursing? Actually, um, when, I, when I was in grade school and high school, I thought I wanted to be a singer and an actress because I right. sounded lovely and, and I enjoyed singing and uh, entertaining and doing whatever else. But uh, I had to be practical. And so my next favorite thing to do was to study science. And that's what led me to nursing. Also, it was um, much more affordable than going to college back in back in the day than nursing programs were usually three-year diploma programs, and the Army actually paid me for part of that education. So that's, I think, what steered me into nursing, and the more I got involved with the more I liked it. Oh, okay. Uh, now, where did you attend nursing school? I attended two. Um, many of the nursing schools were associated with hospitals, and I went to St. Joseph's School of Nursing in Alton, Illinois. Uh, Alton is a city on the river, on the Mississippi River. You know, I know about the Mississippi River. I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, so the, mu- okay. the mighty, muddy Mississippi. I'm very familiar with it. Let me ask you this. How in the world did you end up in the Army? Well, it, it turns out that at that time in history, the Army had a program for women, I say women, mostly women, but there were some men, um, who were in nursing school, 
and wanted to give some time to the Army after they graduated. So it was called the Student Nurses Program, and basically what happened was I joined before my senior year in nurses training, and for the first year, I was considered active reserve, and my job was to finish school, which I did, and graduate. And then after that, I owed Uncle Sam two years of, of active service, which so that's how I ended up getting um, going to Fort, Fort Dix and then on to Vietnam. So it was a okay. program that a lot of women used. I understand. Did you have to go to OCS? We went to, yes, we went to, it was called Officers um, something, but it, it, it's the equivalent <laughs> of OCS. Okay, so just to get your feet on the ground about the military, right? Yes, I spent um, five weeks, five to six weeks in uh, at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, for my officer's basic. I think it's called officer's basic training. Okay, very good. Now, I want to know about your first assignment, and don't forget about the fatties versus the skinnies. That's a great <laughs> story. Go ahead, Lou. Uh, okay. Um, when I was uh, assigned to Fort uh, Fort Dix in New Jersey, Walson Army Hospital, I was given a floor that was quite diverse. Um, first of all, I had um, guys who had been to Nam, had some wounds that still needed a little more attention, and so I would have maybe 10 guys in one ward who just needed a little more treatments for their wounds. The second group I had on the same floor was the stockade. So if you were in for anything from petty theft to murder and you got sick, this is where they armed with um, an MP on the inside and one on the outside. But we'd go through every morning and make sure there were no hidden needles and Lord knows what else. Um, So then I'd have, again, five or six patients in the stockade ward. The third group that was, there were so many inductees into the, draftees into the Army. Did you fade out there? Did I lose you? Uh Uh-oh. I think I lost Lou for just a minute, folks. (laughs) Okay. Well, I can tell you one thing about this lady. She was in the thick of combat and helping our service people. So uh, be right back with you, folks. Uh, I'm sorry. David, let's go to a break, and I'll see if I can get Lou back on here. I think she got disconnected by by accident. We'll be right back with you, folks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes 
soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from lawyers to citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from lawyers to citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, sorry for the glitch, folks. I think space aliens, you know, we've had UFOs lately, so I'm going to blame space aliens for the glitch this time. Okay, Lou, you were talking about your son, the Fort Dix, New Jersey. Go ahead. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, something is haunting the phone or something. Um, anyway, so the third group of patients I had were guys with upper respiratory infections. It's like if one kid in school gets a cough, the, the whole classroom gets a cough. So I'd have as many as 100 um, young men hacking and coughing and sneezing and whatever else. And the last group was the most interesting group because it was the, we call them the fatties and skinnies. 
they the army wanted you to maintain a certain weight even so if you were overweight or underweight they would put you in hospital pajamas and then have you uh, eat accordingly so the fatties got milkshakes and the skinnies got extra food and uh, unfortunately they put them all in the same ward so the fatties beat up the skinnies and took their milkshakes and I think the fatties got fattier and the skinnies got skinnier. And I'm not sure it was a very successful program. <laughs> well, that sounds like an Army program. Uh, okay. All right, now from there, you did get orders for Vietnam. Um, I want to talk about that, but when you got orders for Vietnam, let me ask you this. What did your parents think when you got orders for Vietnam? You know, what's interesting is we were not a family that discussed a lot of feelings, and I don't remember specifically anything that was said. Um, I think my father was sort of proud because there was no other woman in my small town who had been in the military, much less gone off to war. And um, I'm sure my mother worried a lot. I did have to get their permission to join, but I think in a way, despite the worry, I think they were proud of me. All right, very good. Tell us about your arrival in Vietnam and your first impression of that tropical paradise called Chu Lai, Vietnam. My first impression was hot, 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 hot. Uh, we, I flew over, uh, uh, landed there in the 1st of November, so I come from a fairly cool climate at that time of the year. And um, when I, they opened the door in, down in Long Bend, um, the Benoit Airport, it, it just blast of heat hit. I was like, oh boy, it's going to be a toasty year. And <laughs> so uh, we, I spent four days down there. There are also smells in the air that, um, just from the food and, and various other things. Uh, but heat actually smells, and it did when it intensifies the smell, I should say. So after, when I was there, they asked me where I wanted to go. And I had no idea where I wanted to go because I hadn't been to Vietnam before. But I had a former roommate from Fort Dix who was assigned to the 91st of Ak in Shulai. And so I requested Chulai just thinking, well, at least I'd know one other person. And fortunately, I got Chulai. So it was up in I-Corps, um, not just a bit south of Da Nang. And um, they flew me up there and then took a Jeep onto the compound eventually. And unfortunately, they lost all my luggage. So I arrived in war zone <laughs> with no luggage. And it was monsoon season. Up in that part of Vietnam, and so it was raining quite a bit. So the first couple of days were a little rocky for me until I got my got my luggage and uh, things settled down. Yeah, what did you think of Chu Lai? I mean, you're there at a military base; it's all new to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about Chu Lai and your impression of it. Well, we when I say we, I'm talking about doctors and nurses. Just knew that it was one of the prettier spots even during a war. The hospital sat on a cliff overlooking the South China Sea and it really, when it got to be 120 degrees 
we got a little sea breeze, so it only felt like 110. And it re- it really was a very pretty setting, aside from the fact that rockets were being shot at the hospital, and we could hear them whistle overhead some mornings when we took fire. Um, but this, just the scenery alone was very pretty. Uh, blue water, and like I said, a little cooling breeze. So I think I, in many senses, I had it much better than those who were really in deep in the bush, and it was very hot. Yeah. Did, uh, I know you were assigned the emergency room after three months, but what did you do for the first three months in Vietnam? Okay, the first three months I was assigned to a medical ward, which meant I took care of guys that were in the hospital for anything not being a wound. So in other words, oh. malaria, which was rampant in Vietnam and still is an issue, uh, which is very true of a lot of tropical places that have mosquitoes. So malaria, hepatitis from eating dirty food or drinking dirty water. When I say dirty, I mean they ate what they could get. Um, and jungle rot was another big thing that we took care of. At least that's what we called it at our hospital. Is basically when you're wearing uh, combat boots and wool socks and you're out in the bush where stepping in puddles and water and your legs get sores on them because you can't change into dry socks and shoe, uh, boots and then the sores get infected and it gets it's very painful. So we would bring the guys in, dry out their feet, treat their sores, and then we'd, they'd go back out into the bush. So that's anything that wasn't a war wound. I had a, a colonel who had a heart attack, as a matter of fact, that I took wow. care of, too. Wow. Okay. And after three months, you were approached by, I guess, the head nurse, and she asked you if you'd like to uh, be assigned to the emergency room. Tell us about that, and then tell us about the assignment to the emergency room and what you experienced. Okay, that I accepted the challenge, and that was a real eye-opener. Um, you know, when you're working on the medical ward, I wasn't daily facing the horrors of war. But once you go to the emergency room, you I saw everything. Um, most of our... Wounded came in via helicopter, uh, Hueys, or um, ambulance. And you, the, like the first, second day I was there, I, my, the patient that came in that I was taking care of was a double amputee. One, or I should say, would end up being a double amputee. One leg was missing about the knee level, and the other one was still dangling but it, it did not survive surgery. Um, so you learn very quickly to react and to do what you need to do. Uh, we saw, I even saw some triple amputees missing both legs and one arm. Um, we saw gunshot wounds, which of course make little openings when they go into your body, but make a big opening when the bullet exits your body. So those were pretty traumatic. Um, I saw severe head wounds. Um, Many of these guys with the severe head wounds did not survive um, to make it through surgery. Um, 
so, and then we would see things that weren't quite so bad, but still uh, de- demanding attention that you wouldn't see probably in any other setting other than a war zone. Uh, Landmines, those usually resulted in um, amputations. Uh, punji pit accidents, uh, situations where the guy stepped into a punji pit that they didn't know about. So there were all manner of uh, assaults to the body, and everyone seemed to have shrapnel, little pieces of metal embedded in their body somewhere, and depending on where it is embedded, it either is not so bad or it could kill you very shortly if it hits a major blood vessel. So wow. that, was, that, was, that was kind of what my day was like, and we saw uh, U.S. GIs, we saw Vietnamese soldiers, we saw Vietnamese civilians, and we even had a board for POWs, for V.C. and Viet- and uh, Arvin. Wow. Wow. Uh, I'll tell you what, angels of mercy, Jesus. Uh, God bless you, young lady. Uh, I know you saw it all, and I, I know you remember quite a bit about that, too. Uh, when During triage, if it was determined a soldier wouldn't make it, uh, tell us about that, being placed behind a screen. I think those were the toughest decisions to make. Um because we take would take um, injuries in the order in which we felt um, they needed the attention, but some uh, particularly massive head wounds. Um, these guys were were just not going to survive, but they many of them were still alive when they came into the emergency room, or I guess I said alive, I would say they were, um, uh, there was, their hearts were still beating, and they were maybe still breathing as well. And if we determined that, that there was no way this person would survive, we would, one of the nurses, if we were free, would sit and hold their hand and talk to them. They say that the sense of hearing is one of the last to go, and so we would whisper, um, you're going to you're going to be okay. You'll be all right. Um, that's not the time to say you're not going to make it. So we wanted to make sure that their last words were encouraging. Wow. So you would talk to them until they expired. Yes. That that had to be uh, <laughs> wow. The angels of mercy. Uh, you you enjoyed flying on the choppers, didn't you? Well, I didn't get up real often. Once in a while, I got up. Um, I, Thanks to a, a loach pilot who was a friend, I got up one day and just taking aerial shots of the compound, um, which have come in handy for in, in my, doing my book and when I do make presentations because it gives a good layout of what the hospital looked like. Um, then... There were um, times, this is something that most people probably didn't think about, but there were there was a group of young men who were all musicians, and their job was to kind of, I guess you'd say, entertain the troops. Basically, they formed a little band, 
and a snook would come and take them to some of the LZs, the white spot in the, the jungle, where they had tents set up so that guys out in the bush could come in, maybe get a hot shower or a cold shower, but a shower at any rate, and um, get, get something to eat besides their uh, canned meals. And so I, because I enjoyed singing, I kind of went along as a sort of a girl singer for a while. So oh, that I was, didn't know. That was, that I was enjoyable. I didn't know that, but I saw, I saw you with the, uh, the pic photo of you with a, with a guitar, so you knew how to play the guitar, right? I did. I actually uh, got that for high school graduation and didn't take mine with me when I went because I wasn't sure what I was getting into. But the first doctor that went on R&R, I think to Tokyo, I don't even remember exactly where, I said, get me an acoustic guitar, whatever you can find. And um, he did, and I think it cost $60, and I still have it. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, Lou, you mentioned your book. Tell us a little bit about your book. Well... I, I had thought for a long time that I would want to put my thoughts and, and pictures and stuff together, mainly for family, um, because I figured all these scraps of paper and tidbits here and there, when I'm no longer on this earth, somebody will go, what was she thinking? So I decided to put it, I had kept a, a fairly detailed journal the year that I was in Vietnam, especially at the very beginning, which was good. Um, so I, going on my notes from that, and um, like I said, I took a fair number of pictures. And then I've been writing since I was a kid, and I did some poetry, have been doing some poetry the last several years. So I just decided it was a good idea to put it all together. I had several people encouraging me and said, you, you need to write a book, and they say there's a book in everyone, so um, I guess that was the book. I'm actually working on a second book, but this first one is basically a memoir of my year in Vietnam. Uh, I know what you're doing. It's Mending and Remembering, is that correct? Yes, Vietnam Nurse Mending and Remembering. Okay, we're, uh, folks, we're going to our uh, second break. Uh, uh, please stand by. Great, great interview. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmvhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans if you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients 
dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Lou Eisenbrandt, a nurse in Vietnam. Lou, I remember you told me about in one 24-hour period, you took care of 99 Vietnamese civilians. Will you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, that was the busiest day that I remember. Um in terms of numbers, um, it a a village was hit uh, by the Viet Cong and rocketed, and ninety nine villagers were wounded in some manner. Um, it was it started early early in the morning and went through the night and into the next morning. Um, not just treating the wounded, but of course with little knowledge of the Vietnamese language it took us some time to get around to everybody and understand what they were talking about so we do have a couple we had a nurse and a and a aide who were Vietnamese who helped us with that and another uh, interpreter but it's still it takes a lot of time I mean we had people laying on stretchers and all kinds of things because there was just so little room to put anybody. I was pretty tired at the end of that day. I would imagine you were. Uh, you you tried to detach yourself from the suffering. I know that, but you did have a, a an attachment to a young lieutenant who came with his men quite a bit. Tell us about that story. Yes. He was from your neck of the woods. As a matter of fact, he ended up going back to um, uh Augusta after he was wounded in Vietnam uh, we just happened we met at the very the first day we came in and um, spent some time talking and eating together or whatever and um, he was assigned in the Chulai area I don't remember exactly which which unit he was with but he came in the first time after a couple months there with his men because he had a couple injured and then I didn't see him again until about three months later when we he came in and he was wounded and I remember that I was not assigned to him I was assigned to the the GI on the litter next to, next to him but as they took him into the OR my fellow nurse said, they think he's going to lose both of his legs. And that was the only time, really, in my year there that I really kind of had to step aside and compose myself. I just went out. I was not with the patient anymore, and I walked out of the emergency room and just collected my thoughts. Because there there was, even though we had just known each other very briefly, there was a, a, a connection to that person. And I... It, it really um, it affected me, but I 
took about five minutes and caught my breath and had to get back at it because if I wasn't capable of doing what I was doing, I was only going to hurt somebody else. And I did visit him um, after he got back, after I got back, um, down in Georgia, and he still had both of his legs, but they weren't working very well. And I, I think about him often and wonder where he is, if he made it, how he's doing. I bet you uh, wonder about a lot of the boys that you met and took care of uh, at the 91st Hospital, 91st Unit. Yes, um, and, you know, the frustrating, frustrating thing for me is uh, when I visit the wall monument in D.C., I don't know how many of those names on there were actually guys that came through my hospital. Um, and that's a little frustrating because... I, I I know the women's names that are up there, but I don't I don't I just have no way of knowing if this guy was one of those that I whose hand I held or if I did anything to help or if he just I, I just don't know. Yeah, I guess in a year's time he probably saw and treated thousands of, of soldiers, didn't he? Well, I, yeah, I don't know what the exact count would be, but it was a it was a daily occurrence. There, some days were perhaps a bit slower than others, but um, even if they weren't severely wounded, there were there were smaller things that the guys would have to come in and be treated for. So, yeah, um, yes, yeah, so there were quite a few. It was July was I think if I recall correctly, about the time I was there was the height of the deployment, and then they. Started t- started taping tapering off in 1971, I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all the frustration and horrors of war, but you had two outlets. One was the officers' club. Would you like to mention that? Yeah. Yes, I'll mention the officers' club. Uh, if you look, if you look at a map of Tuli, the officers' club is a building that looks like it's about to slide off the edge of the cliff. Um, so it had scenic views, but I don't think any of us uh, went there for the view. Um, <laughs> there, there were occasionally there were uh, guys that had instruments and would play some music, or we uh, somebody had music brought back. I mean, the big thing when you went on R and R was to bring back stereo equipment, as we called it back then. Uh, so there was always something happening, and. Uh, Usually, some sort of alcohol flowing freely. So when you weren't on duty, it was a good place to hang out. Yeah. Okay. And your second uh, source of entertainment, believe it or not, folks will love this story. Tell us about water skiing. Oh, yeah. Most people are quite surprised to hear that we water ski. Uh, But, of course, it was under slightly different conditions than we would do in the States. Um, yeah, I actually it was at, when I met you in in Atlanta uh, some years ago that I I think I got an answer to how we came to have a boat and water skis, <laughs> but at least the Marines took credit for it. I don't know if they really did it or not, but they spoke right up. Um, so I like I said I I didn't know anything about it, but there was a boat and water skis and. Occasionally, if we had free time in the middle of the day, generally in the morning, 
we would go out, some of us would go out water skiing. Um, of course, the, the real challenge to that was, first of all, they had red tides sometime, every once in a while, which was an algae that stings your skin in the water. But the other thing was that the sharks seemed to come in about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and that was time oh. to get out. I don't know how the sharks knew it was 1 o'clock, but they seemed to show up <laughs> about that time. So, uh, and, 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 yeah, there were uh, what you called the LRBs with the local fishermen. Are uh-huh. oh, you know about that? The little right, round boats. Those little round boats, yes. Um, these were local uh, fishermen who had boats that were, um, oh, probably four or five feet in diameter, made out of reeds, I guess, or something. And they would fish out of these little round boats. But if they saw us getting our boat out, they would jump up and down and wave their arms because we once in a while we'd throw them the tow rope and pull them around behind the boat. They thought that was great fun. And they still they still have little round boats. I'm sure there's they have a better name in in Vietnamese, but that's what we call them. Yeah, oh, that's great. And then the one o'clock sharks, that that's absolutely fantastic. Now you are twenty two years old, you're young and adventurous, and you would jump in a Jeep and travel Highway One, which is heavily mined, but to visit orphanage and or way. Would you tell us about about that please? Well, one weekend um a couple of us just wanted to get away from the compound for the weekend. And so uh, two guys and myself took um, uh, our steel pots and our black jackets and um, got a weekend pass. And so we went up uh, all the way up over the High Van Pass to Way, which of course was the old provincial capital under the French. And just observe things along the way. So I have pictures of markets and schools and things like that. Um, I, I'm sure that was probably not the smartest move. But, you know, you're 22, you're young, you figure you're semi-invincible. And um, we just, I, like I said, it was another photo opportunity. Actually, the picture on my, the cover of my book is from that, that trip when we went out for the, for the weekend. And we got back safely, so that was the best part. And when you were on that trip, you were instructed not to purchase Cokes or beer from roadside stands. Why? Yes, uh, there were various ways they the BC uh, would, um, I guess you'd say, contaminate what was what was to be drunk. But yeah, one of trap. the ways that what? Yes, one of the ways we heard was to booby trap. Um, they would take a, uh, they uh, remove or cut away the bottom of a soda or beer, whatever came in the can, remove the bottom, empty the contents, put a grenade inside and wire it to the ring top, then put the bottom back on, and when you pull the ring top, the, the uh, grenade would go off. And so we stuck with water and as I say to students when I speak to them no they we didn't have bottled water we called a canteen and we that's how we got our water no Perrier <laughs> no sorry no Perrier 
right. You uh, you made one. Uh, okay, we're going to run out of time. I'll tell you what. Let's go to our last Hello. break, and then we'll we'll uh, go to your trip to Saigon, which yeah. is really a trip, pardon the pun. And folks, Saigon, we'll be right yeah. back with Lou, registered nurse, Vietnam. Okay, great. I'm I'm doing a, a show right now. Uh, can I call you later? Okay, thank you, sir. Quick stakes. That's Q U I K stakes. Are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes. Q U I K stakes. The truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy, or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Lou uh, Isaac Grant, registered nurse, Vietnam veteran. Lou, uh, tell me about your trip to Saigon. Um, are you talking about before I went on R&R? Uh, which one? Uh, you said it was crazy. Oh, the city itself it was a crazy city. Um, we spent I spent a couple nights in Saigon on my way to Hong Kong for my R&R. Oh, okay. And, and I've, that was my first experience, not that I'd had a worldwide experience, but I'd had a little, with a city where when the lights turned red, everybody went, which meant <laughs> it was total chaos. And, and back in the day, that most of the traffic was uh, mopeds, bicycles, few small cars. That, that has totally changed now since I've, been back to Vietnam four times since the since 1970, but it is I the traffic has not lessened, but I think they are following the the signs a little more closely than they did back then. <laughs> but yet, when I was back in '94, I was standing on the sidewalk and a bicycle rolled right over my feet. So it's um, it's it's I guess it's as bad as any growing and bigger city is uh, to manage traffic and. I tell you what, when I was there, they wouldn't think twice about uh, going the wrong way. No. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Now, rocket attacks were common up at Chile. I don't know you went through several. There were uh, massive fuel storage tanks up there. But um, sometimes you, you ladies wouldn't even put your helmets on during a rocket attack. Why was that? 
Well, as I say to, when I speak to contemporaries of mine that are, let's just say, over 60, uh, I can I can talk about brush rollers in their hair because they know what, what I'm talking about. But we used to, even, even though you were in a war zone, you wanted to look good. So you put your hair up on rollers and sleep on them during the night. But if we had an early morning attack and we had to grab our black jackets and steel pots, I just left the steel pot behind because putting that on over brush rollers is quite painful. And it didn't, uh, we just went with the flak jackets. Fortunately, when nothing hit the hospital while I was there, and so that we didn't have to worry about that. Those are those infamous peak hair rollers, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. You, um, the realities of war, I know you try to forget them, but uh, tell me a little bit about your, your exposure to Agent Orange and uh, just your... Good Lord, just, just tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, well, I um, I really never thought much about Agent Orange while I was there. Obviously, it was part of the warfare. Um, and it wasn't until uh, about um, 2008 that I started... Um, thinking more about why I developed Parkinson's. And at the time, in 2002, my neurologist had said large exposure uh, exposure to uh, herbicides, pesticides. And then in 2008, I saw something on the web about if you were in Vietnam and are, have developed Parkinson's, and then the, the light bulb went off in my brain and said, this, this has got to be the connection. Every time a guy, GIs would come in, the first thing we would do to the, was to cut off their fatigue so we could assess the damage, the injuries. And clearly the Agent Orange was everywhere. And so there's no um, question that it, many of us were exposed to it. Um, and that sort of triggered my my activism to let this be known to all the GIs out there who uh, suffered from things in Vietnam. There are lots of uh, conditions on the list now that they will uh, accept as being related to Agent Orange, um, and Parkinson's is just one of them. But it certainly woke me up and, and gave me a reason to, to know how I come by having Parkinson's. Wow. Uh, you said there was a photo taken of you on your last day in Vietnam, and it shows a young nurse who aged in just one year. Tell us about uh, uh, that aging and also your flight home from Vietnam. Well, considering the year that I'd had, and I was out of nurses' training for just really a full year before I got orders to Vietnam, you can't help but grow up um, very quickly. Like I said, if you if you can't hold up under the pressure, you're not of any good to anybody. So I think you, you grow up whether you want to or not. Um, when I got, the day I got left or had orders to leave, um, I remember getting on the airplane. I was the only woman 
I don't know how many guys there were, but the rest were all men. And just mixed feelings, leaving behind some people who were very close to me because when you're in a war zone like that, you, you rely on your buddies and those around you and you become very close. But at the same time, thrilled to be going home in one piece, which unfortunately so many were not. Um, so it was a mixed, mixed reaction. Fortunately, when I got back, I was not booed and spit upon like some of the guys were. Um, but I think that's the, the sad saga of Vietnam is that they're just, um, I think that's why the Vietnamese veterans are so close because we went through similar things and um, just you develop a bond that stays with you. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. You talked to me about one guy that came into the emergency room and um, you rode him over on his, rode him over to check for exit wounds and something horrible happened. I want you to tell the folks what happened. Well, basically he was, he had several small shrapnel wounds, but he had a massive wound in his chest area. And in, in an effort to, we always had to roll the uh, the GIs over, well, any of the patients over to see what was in the back. And part of his back literally stayed on the litter. Um, so we quickly put him back. Uh, as I recall, I think he had a leg missing, but he was still awake. Um, and he took him immediately into surgery, and he survived at least to be air out to uh, Tokyo. I think that's where a lot of the patients went. Um, and I think about him every time I, I speak of Vietnam because, I again, I don't, know, I don't know what his name was. I don't know if he survived. I don't know if he's still with us or if he's the name on the wall. Wow. You know, I was... <laughs> I was there for 30 months, about two and a half years, and it's with me every day. I, I remember it every day. I usually talk to a veteran every day. I know it's always with you, too, isn't it, Lou? Yeah, it is. You, you, it's just, uh, especially since my, my book came out, I just, I meet people who said, oh, I don't even know well, and so I read your book, and I, I think the thing is, if my, if the book that I've written has can get one GI talking about his experience who never said a word before, it was worth the book. Because talking is the best way to get through the PTSD and all the rest of the issues that are out there. No, I agree with you. I keep telling all my buddies or anybody I meet, talk to me. I'll write your story. Or at least yeah. tell the story to your family. You don't have to get into blood and gore because your great-grandchildren can go on the Internet and find out where you were and what you did. If they don't relate their stories, it's going to go with them. It will be another story that's missing, and everyone needs to hear these stories. Lou, you, uh, when you return home, uh, you spent about six weeks on the road with another nurse. Tell us about that. Well, it was, it was kind of from decompression, I guess. Um, yes, she was living in the Minneapolis area, and we got 
to the her family car or extra car and just drove. Um, I flew up to Minneapolis and we drove through the great northwest, um, went up to um, uh, Mount Rushmore and then across through the upper parts of the uh, Idaho, Idaho and Wyoming. And this was in November and December, so it was there was no traffic. We didn't see anyone for <laughs> 70 miles going through Yellowstone. Um, and then we stopped in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., and stayed with nurses that we had known uh, in Vietnam, and ultimately then went to Las Vegas and then into Denver, where we, since we were both out of the military, we applied for civil service nursing jobs at Fitzsimmons Army Hospital. And then we went home and came back and started work uh, in January of uh, 1971. Uh, yeah, 1971. So it was, it, it was a good way to kind of come out of a transition from Vietnam to life in the world, as we used to call it. Yeah. Did you, uh, you said, now you went to work at Fitzsimmons in Denver, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, that's where I went to intelligence school, Denver, Colorado. That is God's country out there. It is absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. Gorgeous. It is. Did you learn to snow ski? Did you snow ski? I did. I did. And I, we skied for many, many years. Um, and the last time I skied, I took a fall, which I didn't usually do. And I look back on it now. It was about the time that my uh, Parkinson's symptoms started up, so I think that may have had something to do with it. And you ended up marrying a young lawyer? Oh, my goodness. I, I did. I did. He was he was in the reserves uh, in a medical unit um, be, trying to find some place to put himself before he got drafted, and so he ended up with his two weeks of summer duty at Fitzsimmons Army Hospital when I was when I had just started working there. So we dated a week for a week, and I visited Kansas City for a month, and we were married two months later. Wow. All right. All right. Uh, how many children do you have? Uh, we have two kids. Um, our daughter and her husband live in the this area of Kansas where we are. They're both teachers, and they have... Will, who is 12, and Emma, who is 10. And then our son, Matt, who is a human rights lawyer, and his wife, Jen, live in Victoria, British Columbia. Wow. And they have Riley the dog. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lou, your, your parting thoughts on Vietnam. Okay, Pete, we're going to have to wrap it up. Okay, I'm sorry. We don't have time for that. Lou, great interview. Thank you so much. Uh, folks, I believe eight nurses eight nurses lost their life in Vietnam. One was 26-year-old 26 Lieutenant Sharon Lane. She was killed by shrapnel from an exploding rocket while caring for Viet Cong prisoners at Chu Lai. God bless the angels of mercy. mercy. Thank you so much, Lou. Great interview. Thank you, ma'am. My pleasure. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.